Welcome to The Leading Edge, Developing Officers for Command. I'm Senior Master Sergeant Eugene Christ from your 130th Public Affairs. This is the fourth episode of the 12-part series that will be released once a quarter. Now let's get to the content. Hey, good morning, everybody. Good morning. Um, gosh, welcome back. Really glad to see everybody. I know we've got a little bit thinner crowd today. There's a lot going on. Uh, especially with family day later today, but that compresses our schedule across the board so folks can get their readiness requirements done before they have a little fun this afternoon with their families. So I know we have a little bit uh, smaller audience than we have had historically, but really appreciate you all being here today. We got two topics to cover. The first topic will be on essentially the roles and missions of Joint Force Headquarters here in the state. Then the second topic will be essentially looking at emotional intelligence as a component to command. And really glad for Senior Master Sergeant Moore heading up that, that group, and I think they've got a real nice piece for you. But before we get to that, we're going to lead off with Colonel Robbie Kincaid. Colonel Kincaid is the Director J5 for Joint Force Headquarters here. He uh, Robbie and I have known each other a long time. We were actually reminiscing yesterday yep. about how, how much ground we've covered, probably over oh, close to 15 years. But when I was the state J6, Robbie held multiple jobs, but he you know, was uh, the operations director at training site command at Camp Dawson. I think you were training site commander at one point. And that's probably one area where he and I spent a lot of time together, especially as uh, we collectively built out a lot of facilities <laughs> yeah. there. If you go up to uh, Camp Dawson and you see the newer side of the billeting complex or you go into the operations building there or even the multipurpose building there, mm -hmm. Colonel Kincaid had a hand, a significant hand with the construction and build out of those facilities. But why are we talking about the roles and missions of Joint Force Headquarters? Well, if you reflect back to our last session, looking at goals and objectives for the organization, one of our goals comes from Major General Crane, and that is to build joint leaders. Thus, it is important for us to at least familiarize yourself with what the roles and responsibilities a joint force headquarters is in the organization. All of you have either already worked with our Army counterparts or will work with our Army counterparts in the future in the state. You may have been part of a joint task force, especially with our most recent COVID operation. I will say there is a distinct difference in functioning in that capacity, either state active duty or something like that and being actually assigned to the joint staff, uh, either in a director role or working within a directorate on a full-time basis. There's a tremendous value that comes with it. I spent eight years as the J6 for the state. I learned so much. I also got to see the transformation of the staff itself in that eight-year time period. Uh, when I was originally appointed as the J6, there was only one staff. There was no J staff and G staff. It was just one staff. And I was actually the first air officer appointed as a staff director. So 
It was very educational for me to go through that process. But I will tell you, the most valuable component of that entire experience was the relationships that I built with my Army counterparts. To the point where today, Colonel Kincaid and I can both walk into the Unified Command for the National Scout Jamboree across the street and there is instant trust and camaraderie and collaboration between the two of us. It's instantaneous. I know his strengths and weaknesses, he knows mine. And we both respect each other and know what we bring to the table. So I would encourage each of you, as you go through your careers, to really look outside this wing for opportunities that can enhance your overall experience and your knowledge, skills, and abilities. And one of those is our Joint Force Headquarters. So without further ado, Colonel Kincaid, sure, thank you. Absolutely. You know, first and, and, and foremost, I, I appreciate the ability to come here and, and talk to all of you because I, I think what you're doing here is extremely important, all right? You know, I got, I'm building on 30 years in the service. And I do have some experience and a lot of the components that Colonel Chard spoke about. I was in the 167th when I was going through college at WVU, spent seven years up there in the aerial port <clears throat> as a rigger, and then I enlisted in the active duty Army, switched over, and spent seven years on active duty before I came back to the Guard. So I feel like I've got a good touch point you know, across the spectrum, especially here in West Virginia, with, you know, the Air Guard, the Army. I've been on state active duty with the Air Guard back when I was a young senior airman, airman basic, all that stuff, to today being 06 and being on state active duty. So, you know, I think I can talk about, you know, the, the breadth of how that works how it merges and all those other things. But, you know, I wanna come back and give a plug to this type of event because I, in my 30 years, when I got my commission off active duty from OCS and became a platoon leader for a sapper unit in a divisional unit at Fort Hood, I was a terrible lieutenant, awful, right? I mean, I was enlisted Army, enlisted Air Force, but terrible lieutenant, right? And and. The reason I say that, it's not because I did anything bad or didn't understand what was going on. It's the, fo the, the premise that my blinders were so narrow, right? And, and just like what Colonel Chard talked about. You know, opening up to the experiences that the military holistically has for all of us that broadens our minds and broadens our understanding and then eventually develops those relationships that are gonna make you successful in anything that you do, right? So again, you know, I was solely focused on, you know, blowing things up, kicking doors in, doing all that kind of stuff through deployments in Iraq, Solder City, all that good stuff. But I really didn't start to mature, and I use the word mature carefully here, until I was a captain, right? Until I started to understand that the better I understood what went on to my left and to my right from adjacent units, that's truly when you started to grasp the bigger picture. And then you could take all that information, right, and start developing it into your training plans that set, you know, as officers, right, we have a responsibility. We've got a resource, plan, 
and set the stage for execution for our airmen and soldiers to be successful, right? That is the most critical thing that we do. We have to set, taking care of soldiers and airmen is all about resourcing, training them, and putting them in positions to succeed. Well, I truly didn't start to garner that maturity to understand all the dynamics that go into that until I was captain. And it's events like this that'll broaden your mind, open you up to that bigger understanding of development. And, and this is one of the pieces, right? I mean, we all grow up through the service really just focused on what it is right there in front of us that we're trying to do to get through the day, to be successful, to move on, and so on and so forth, right? But that, that maturity and that development that comes when you start to broaden your understanding, and this is one of them that we'll go through today and hopefully um, give you some better perspective on how it works, things that we've done, things that we've talked about at the command level with all that. So we'll do that. So Joint Force Headquarters kind of runs this domestic operations. But Joint Force Headquarters, you know, really has two missions. And one is, is from an HHD standpoint, they have to, just like your headquarters command units do, they have to run everything administratively to keep the readiness for the soldiers and airmen so they can deploy, whatever the deployment cycles are. Whether it's the long ones like we do, or the short order ones that you do, and you have to be ready within 72 hours, all those type of things. But the other part of that is, again, this domestic operation. All right, so this is our agenda. So I'm gonna you know, talk about you know, what do we do, our mission, you know, how is it structured? We'll talk about the, yes, the Joint Force Headquarters has a mission essential task list. We'll talk about that, it's strategic. Uh, we'll talk about domestic operations. You know, how does it work? How does information flow? You know, the JIEE process, request for information, request for assistance, all that stuff, the EMACs. We'll talk about that. You know, and then again, we'll talk about how the information goes from the joint, you know, the J staff, you know, down to the services and then ultimately to the wings or to the MSCs uh, across the street in the Army. And then if we have time, if we get there, I'll talk a little bit career management, placement, promotion and placement for broadening assignments and how, where should you strategically look and talk to your senior raters about how do you work towards those J-level staff positions, right, down here at Joint Force Headquarters. So we'll touch on some of that. So uh, this is the mission statement. And some of the stuff I wanna talk here is it's really important. You know, the Air Guard and Army are both have dual status missions, right? So you got, you got a federal and you got a state mission. And that's prescribed in the Constitution, right? So not only do you have a quarter amount of the time to do what your active component does every day, right? Whether it's Army or Air, you got two missions to worry about. And so first and foremost, you answer to the governor. Unless you are federalized for a federal mission, right, through one of your air, major air commands, so air, air mobility command, or something like that, you answer to the governor. You don't answer to NGB even if you're federalized, right? You're usually gonna go under one of those major air commands and you're gonna support a combatant command mission, CENTCOM, you know, PACOM, those type of things, all that. Uh, the 167th obviously was involved in uh, Operation Allied Refuge, you know, evacuation of Afghanistan. I happened to be a unified commander there in Kuwait when I was in CENTCOM as a brigade commander. So that's, that's, that's what we do, right? So you gotta train for both of those. So you got local and state, federal, domestic operations, 
on limited time and notice because again it's a disaster right you, you don't have time to sit around prep and get ready to go out the door you've got to be there at that moment rushing to the fire and in west virginia i'm going to tell you right now that's the governor's expectation right a lot of people get into wanting to talk to me about doctrine oh no we should be the last thing that gets called up and i'm like well i got that but your your uh, commander-in-chief who is the governor that's not his expectation his expectation is when something happens in the state of west virginia whether it's flood fire snow wind covid whatever it is water contamination you'll see some of that he wants the guard there why if you think about west virginia from a perspective of the world and the nation it's not thought about much right i mean who cares about it okay what's really going on i know senator manchin gets a lot of play right now because he's kind of that vote across the aisle but for most times most people don't pay attention to west virginia so now you take that down to a micro level a place like Harmon, Welch, right, Man, these places that some of you may have heard of or not heard of out in the backwaters of West Virginia, those people really don't think anybody cares about them. So when a flood happens like that, and I gave this speech to some soldiers that were up in Harmon on the 4th of July, we had to go to a flood duty. And they asked, oh, sir, why are we here? What, the, the, the folks aren't even here to tell us what to do because they're having hot dogs and hamburgers. And I said, that should be the greatest feeling in the world. Because you know why they can do that? Because you bring stability. When green and tan vehicles or blue suitors or green suitors come into a community, you bring hope and stability. All the first responders in the world can be there, right? But when they see your stuff, that brings a whole nother level of stability and um, hope to people that don't think anybody cares about them. So that's the importance behind this mission statement right here, right? You know, to preserve life, protect property, restore infrastructure, you're bringing all those things back to those citizens. That is your state mission, right? And we'll talk a little bit more about it as we go through from, a, from an army and air component uh, perspective. This is your leadership, obviously, just like I said, when you're in state mode, that's your commander in chief. When you're in federal mode, it's the president, major air commands, you know, back down through your wings, all right? And then obviously your adjutant general, you got your director of joint staff, General Cadel, and then your uh, senior enlisted leader, Command Sergeant Major Jones. And this is exactly kind of how it configures. You've got your dual missions, your adjutant general's in charge, right, until you are actually put on Title 10 and you go out the door to support whatever named mission it is that you've been put on. And then you've got the different components here uh, that support the adjutant general in being able to provide readiness from an air and a ground standpoint to both state and federal missions. And we kind of fall in here as a joint staff, right? And then you've got military authority, which is all the state employees that support the guard. And of course, you've got the air staff headquarters here that kind of sets between the wings for the 167th and the 130th. Okay, so here's your joint staff manning, you know, as you flow down from the adjutant general through the director of joint staff, 
senior and leader, and then you've got a deputy. But these are all the primary J staff functions. You're going to, oh, blue, are they air guard? No, that just defines that they're technicians there. And we've got a vacancy here. This is actually going to be a Title V. Now, the thing I will tell you is, is the goal is to have much more of a mix, and I'll talk about that as we get towards the end of the presentation, where it is air and army components in these positions as we move forward as an organization. You know, Colonel Chard used to be the J-6. Uh, Colonel Ogle was the J-6 at one time. It just happened to flip back to the Army. But any of these positions can be that way as long as we manage the resources and move them appropriately. Thing of it is, is when you talk about a joint construct, the resources for a joint construct come from the A and the G side, right? So you got Army and Air. And so those slots that you would fill have to come from those components in order to make something like this work. So that's a strategic development in itself to figure out how you're going to do that because obviously you're taking resources from an entity, you know, because it's not like you're getting plussed up those type of slots. So again, that's a ebb and flow and a balance that has to be struck when you're developing these type of things, right? But each one of those, it's, it's no different. And I know that the wings are configured a little different. They don't have what I consider those tr you know, true staff sections, right? You all have your like different groups that support sustainment, operations, those type of things, right? Now, I know the Air, Air Force is moving towards more of that A3, A4, A6, all that kind of components, right? But for right now, the wings work in those group you know, commands type of entities to support some of these kind of section driven type events and stuff like when it comes to planning and those type things. So but anyways, that's that's kind of how that's broke down. Does anybody have any questions on what these are specifically? I mean, it's basic intelligence, operations, logistics, sustainment. You know, mine is a plans, policy, future planning, those type of events, building those relationships, working with the state and federal partners to develop components that will support readiness and the development of the air and army, those type of things. Just to highlight what you said, Robbie, you know, historically we've had air guard personnel as J2s, as J3s, right. and as J6s. You know, they fill these roles. We've had blue suitors in almost every directorate below yep. the actual Yep, absolutely. But I, I think it's really important. I'll tell you right now, from my perspective, as, as long as I've been in the Guard and my touch points with it, this is the best I've ever seen it from a communication standpoint of both services, right? And the interconnectedness that we have to support the state, federal, and any of the initiatives that the TAG has set forth. I really feel like it's on a really strong glide path across that. And, and that's a reflection of the people that are in the organization. That's what that comes down to. Just like Colonel Chart said, it's all about relationships. All right, so I won't, I won't bore you with this, but it is a, we have a six METs, right, which are mission system tasks. Just like with you all, you all have unit status reports for your airframes and your different groups that, you know, 130 is a tactical airlift and then the uh, 167th is a strategic airlift to be able to go out and do your missions when you're called upon, right? Well, this, this is developed to give that strategic mission essential tasks that we've got to maintain in order to do both, support the federal and support 
the state missions. You know, one thing I forgot to, to mention on the previous slide is, you know, if you're in one of these J section staffs, you need to understand the dynamics of both the Army and the air. So there's an education there that has to occur, right? Because you have to be able to look across the lines, say if you're in Intel at the Joint Staff, and be able to understand what it is that the wings and the headquarters from the air perspective would need to make them successful. What's the so what behind the intelligence that you all would use? And then also being able to look across the street and look at the Army and say, okay, what is it from an intelligence perspective that they would need to protect them and put them in the right situations to counter an enemy or counter an event that's going on. So, and this, this kind of gets to some of that, right? You know, maintain situational awareness. That's exactly what I just said, right? You got to have an understanding of both sides, right? And be able to understand the regulatory mission guidance and those dynamics that come from each component. Uh, sustain the force. You got to be able to you know, maintain prolonged operation. You know, General Skinner, I had to do a, a briefing to him here not too long ago, a couple weeks, and I got to basically give him an overview of the Army and Air Guard from a West Virginia standpoint. And he asked me the question, okay, what's the, what's the biggest challenge? For me, the biggest challenge is balancing the force, right? It goes back to what I said right in the beginning. Your active component has to worry about its federal mission. You have to worry about two missions with the quarter amount of the time. So how do you balance that, right? How do you figure out where your priorities are and where your efficiency of force needs to be applied to be successful? And we continue to do that. And I would consider, consider West Virginia a very mature state in that. Because we've, we've done it for a very long time, figuring it out. And it feels like we're never really complacent. We're always trying to kind of push the edge and push the boundaries of those things. And so, but when you sustain the force, you know, you got to make sure your equipment, your airmen, your soldiers, all those things are ready and on point to do that. Again, that, that turns right into maintain force readiness. So that gets into, do you have the equipment you need to deploy? Are your vacancies filled? And are you ready? Right? That's <coughs> it. Provide command and control. You got to be able to communicate and people have to understand what it is that you're asking them to do. Clarity of information is key to everything, right? And that's not just from a command perspective. I mean, I need to do my due diligence, Colonel Chard needs to do his due diligence to understand what it is from a big picture standpoint that the Air Force or the Army's trying to do, bring that down to some context, see what the resources and requirements are to make that happen, and then be able to give it to you all in a clear manner so that you understand it. Now, the key is you can't leave the table until you do understand it. Sometimes we'll get the head nods with the glares. Yes, I understand. And then they walk out and they go, I had no idea what he just said. So that's the thing. You got to be able to do that. And then establish joint task forces. So this is exactly what Colonel Chard talked about. So, you know, we're getting ready to go into the National Scout Jamboree, right? We had a COVID task force, right? So that's one of the missions. So you got to be able to bring together all the components in order to support a mission that was defined in this case, right? This is kind of that national and state mix because you have a dual status commander and General Holt that's gonna be in charge of supporting the Jamboree down there, right? But that's federal. 
but you've got that state mix to it. So that's kind of where it comes, comes jointly. And so we've got to be able to do that. And by, by what I'm doing today, it's helping that, right? Because if you garner an understanding of this, it's easier to plug in, just like Colonel Chard said, you know, me and him have worked together throughout our careers. And so when you put us in a room together, it makes working in this kind of environment really, really easy, right? Because there is some common language, there's some common understanding on what we're trying to solve or protect or reestablish at the end. Okay, DOMOPS missions. You know, I said it, right? Floods, hurricanes, snow, ice, chemical spills, water contamination, inauguration, State of the Union. And then, of course, we're doing finishing up COVID-19 closeouts. And we're even got about 350 airmen and soldiers in the Department of Corrections because the governor deemed that critical and activated and said, hey, I, I need the guard to help us out here, right? This is, this is a critical thing to the state. It protects our citizens. Again, tying back to that mission, life and limb, right? You can't have criminals running around in the streets. You can't have lawlessness going on in the penitentiaries. So that was the governor's solution to that problem temporarily. It's like probably two year temporarily, right? And that's it. You, and you gotta balance that with everything else that you're doing. Another one is, and I think I, uh, is the uh, Texas border missions coming up. We're gonna send maybe 50 folks down there to support that mission. So you just never know what's around the corner. Now, what I will tell you, so when you go back to this, and you have this in Air Force, we have it in Army, it's not as broad as this, it's not as strategic, right? It's more focused on whether it's maintenance, the airframes, uh, Bradley's, engineer equipment, Humvees, whatever it is, you know, you're designed to support that unit from a personnel, having the equipment you need, your weapons platforms, airframes, Bradley's, type that, those big pacing items, right? And then training all those folks on that equipment to be ready. If you make that the core of everything that you do, mobilizing for a state active duty is pretty easy. Because really the only component there you need is to build the relationships and have some common language. So that's, that's kind of the way I approach it from a command perspective in my different levels of command. Domestic operations functions. All right, so you got, you know, we work really close with emergency management. Department of Emergency Management, Director G.E. McCabe is the Director of Emergency Management. Dr. Blackwood is his Deputy Director. I talk to him probably once a week. All right, because again, it's all about understanding each other, right? You know, they're working with the county OESs. Those requests are coming into them. We try to refine it, what exactly the county OESs are looking for. And then we look across the spectrum of the Army and air to figure out what it is we can do to meet those requirements or those needs out in the community. And a lot of that gets funneled up through emergency management. And then the joint information exchange environment. So this is how we got like this Texas state border or we get the state of the union mission, the trucker convoy mission that a lot of, you know, a lot of your folks were involved in as well. So all that kind of stuff comes back through that. And it comes down as a request for information or a request for forces. 
And hence the word request, right? Because NGB is not a combatant command. They are not in charge of the guard. They funnel information and money to both entities, right? That's a class in itself. But that's how that works. So they request for assistance. And then typically West Virginia is like one of the first states to say, yep, yep, absolutely, we'll come do it. Because we, that is our, we are a homeland response force. That's what we are here to do, support the citizens. Obviously, we want to look at West Virginia first, make sure there's nothing major going on here, and then we go off to help our partners. And, and that kind of leads into this next thing right here, which is our EMACs, right? These are the agreements we have with our regional states in our area, because if they don't have a certain capability from an air and army perspective, we can put this on the document and then when they ask for it, they know that we're the ones that have it, so they know how to ask. We work through emergency management, there's an agreement signed, and then we send those capabilities, forces, equipment, whatever it is, across the border to support them. And then vice versa, they would do the same thing. It's like a mutual aid agreement, right? Like for the you know, fire department with the other fire departments in the region. So Okay. So this is getting into the weeds of a domestic operation, flood, you know, COVID, whatever it is. So this is one of the things that we staffed. This is relatively new. And what I want to say here is, and, and, it, and it was really enlightening to go through the mission analysis with Colonel Freed Studlow, Colonel Switzer, some other key staff members out of the Air Guard, and then we had some key Army staff that were involved in staffing. How do we do response as a task force or joint task force? How do we, how, what's the smartest way to do that, right? One of the concepts was, is okay, we're gonna have the 130th, and we're gonna have the 167th, they're gonna be in charge of regions and we're gonna push them forces to manage all this stuff. No, no. Because think about it like this. And this was what came, this is when you do good mission analysis, you start to figure these things out. What, what are most state active duties? Where, are they, where, where do they happen, right? They're, they're ground operations, right? Who manages ground operations? The Army, right? That's what I signed up for, what I transferred for, right? I transferred to be in ground operations, out there pounding the ground, working the land, engaging the enemy or helping the citizens directly, right? That's it, that's what I signed up for. Logistics, sustainment, all those things. Air right? That's strategic airlift or tactical airlift to support ground operations, right? So what we figured out during that whole mission analysis is if we're going to stand up an operation to support the citizen of West Virginia, the Army, through the 77th Troop Command, which is a brigade, it's kind of equivalent to a group or a wing, and then the 111th Engineer Brigade, same thing, equivalent to a group or a wing, would be the lead command of it, right? And one of their elements, whatever size it is, right? So, you know, you're talking battalion, that's a squadron at your level, right? You got company, a flight, right? So, so for us, we figure out, you know, depending on the type of event it is, what we're gonna send out, and we're gonna say, hey, we're gonna put a company commander or a battalion commander or maybe a battalion AO or somebody like that in charge. And then what we would do is just like the air guard is, 
They're enablers, right? You are going to enable that event to happen. And then so what we're going to do is mix in leadership and the air guard into those capabilities as they go out to work those different now. And, and that's to cover the whole state now. It's not regional. It's none of that. If, so, if a flood duty happens, the 111th knows it's going to get called because they're engineers. They have, you know, horizontal equipment, you know, to clear debris, cut trees, move trees, dig ditches, put in culverts, all that stuff, haul away stuff. You know, if it's more uh, like a COVID response or like a scout jamboree, perfect example, well, then 77th Troop Command gets put in charge of it. And so they manage it. And then we put air and other components to support that command. Does that make sense? And that's that doctrinal. You're going back to that doctrinal scheme of operations and how things should work and all that kind of stuff. So that's good. So that's where we came to. And you know, all this happens through declarations by the state because there's a bill that's got to be paid. And that's the thing, if you ever get put out there as an officer in one of these situations, everybody wanna rush to the fire, everybody wants to take care of them, and you should. If it's life limb, you do it. But if it's outside of that, you need to take a tactical pause and you need to make sure that it's supported properly, that you're not using resources where they shouldn't be used, and you're being a good custodian of the taxpayer's dollars from a state and federal perspective. Because there is a bill that's going to be due to pay that. And the counties cannot, they don't have huge coffers of money to be able to do that. So they have to work back through the state. The state has to look at it. And through the governor's office, they'll approve a budget to support the manpower and equipment to be out there. Because ultimately, the state has to pay the federal government back for the use of you and your equipment. And so you don't want to sign up for a bill that's not going to be approved to be paid. The TAG wouldn't be very happy with that. Because the governor's not going to be happy with it. Okay, tasks. All right, so steady state. So now the reason we went to that joint task force is because during COVID we learned a, a pretty hard lesson, right? The TAG has lots of initiatives that are going on every day with working with industrial partners, working with the legislative branch, all the things that, that we've got to do from a standpoint there. And so by doing the joint task force and putting that more down to the field units, then the joint staff can continue to work those initiatives. And it's not like you've had to take them offline to work a domestic operation, right? Now, in the first 72 hours, the joint staff's gonna be all, all involved in it, right? Getting it set up, getting it managed, because we know that it takes about 72 hours to mobilize out of the wings and out of the major support commands out of the army. Because you got M-Day soldiers and airmen. So you gotta bring them in, get them, you know, RSOI, JRSOI, all those kind of things. And then again, emergency response, all those type of things. You know, you're gonna have to, and what we did on the Army side, and I would highly recommend on the Air Guard side, is at any given time, we have units ready, right, to be called up. Because you don't wanna do it for nothing. You know what I'm saying? Like, so what we do is we all have a couple companies on call and so we may have 100 soldiers. That, then they're, they're not in the armories or anything like that. They're working their jobs. But, you know, quarter-based, biannually, you know, this number of soldiers knows that if a state active duty happens, they're probably going to be the first ones to call. So they'll have go bags and stuff like that ready. And then it rotates to another group of soldiers. 
that's kind of how we've cracked. When I was brigade commander at the 111th, that's what, that's kind of how we did business. And, and then that was, it was predictable for them. They could tell their employers, hey, this time of year right now, this is hurricane season. It's flood season. It can happen. So the soldiers are tracking. They know. And that's just a good way to manage the force. Okay. All right, I'm going to shift gears. We'll go through this really quick. I'm running about five minutes over. So, but I think this is important. So I'm sure you all have seen stuff like this uh, on, the Air, on the Air Force side. It's just a career management timeline, right? And what I do for all my officers that are under my command is we have two levels down, right? Down to the major level. I talk to them about placement and promotion. Where do they want to go versus where the organization wants them to go? And then we try to work out a happy medium because if you can put a soldier or airman in a place that they want to be, then they're invested in that career makes it better, right? Now, sometimes that doesn't always happen. Yeah, you gotta manage that. You gotta manage expectations. But if you're clear and transparent about that all you know, through the system, it makes for better understanding of the organization and, and makes the organization better overall uh, when you're managing those careers. And all this does is just paint the picture, right? Because it's a one-page document you can take and set with your senior leader, senior raider, and talk through that. Now, how do you get to this? This is five years, right? So this is how you get to it. So this is the second page of that document. And always ask them, you know, hey, how do you want to retire? What position do you want to retire? What rank do you want to retire? So that's the end state goal, right? And your five-year plan that I just showed you before is how do you get there? Now, again, that's once it's agreed on between the command and the officer that you're talking to. But the reason I wanted to show you this is because it's an integration place, right? I, I tried to put some Air Force stuff in here, right? To make sure we were talking two languages. But what I did is, you know, and, and, I, and I did this at a, a captain's call for the Army. Also did it for an engineer symposium. We have branch meetings on the Army side where we bring all of our engineers together and we try to manage them as they go forward. And the best touch point that you have with them is really when they're captains to start working some of this stuff. Because as lieutenants, you're pretty much pre-assigned in certain things that you're going to be doing coming up through the ranks. But what you want to do is you're trying to balance their required positions, right? Most people need, if they're going to try to make colonel or be a senior leader, you know, they need to be a commander, right? They need to have some KD time as a squadron ops officer or squadron XO or some of those things, right? That's going to facilitate them up through the ranks to make some of the higher lieutenant colonel, colonel type positions. Well, what you want to be able to do is mix in between this, right? Like a J33 at the major level, which J33 is current ops. That's what that is. So that's current ops or, or a J35. What's five stand for? Plans. Yeah. So it's a J35. So you're sitting in a J35 spot and you're doing plans, but at the joint level. So what I encourage is, is either after or before your ops positions at the squadron level, you know, you can get plugged into those positions. You know, uh, Colonel uh, Persinger down the hill, right? Uh, Colonel Sloan down the hill. He did that and those type of things. It's just really important. You can do this for the NCOs as well, but that kind of gives you that. And then, you know, if you're a squadron uh, commander as a lieutenant colonel, 
then we could start looking at, hey, before you go to be looked at at the group level for a position, maybe we get you down here to be the deputy J3, right? Stuff like that. Deputy HRO, right? Managing the force from an AGR and technician billet standpoint. That's really crucial. So that's, that's, that, that's the kind of stuff. And then there's the SPP director and other positions like that as well. And again, you got to try to manage. I will tell you, you know, a lot of things are correspondence now. These spots are good for you doing your DEP, your correspondence courses. Managing these when you're doing this. You don't want to do these while you're being a commander. You don't want to do that. You want to stay away from that because you really should be investing in resourcing the greatest resource you have, which is your airmen and soldiers, right? And it's hard to do that if you're trying to do school too. I know because I did war college. I'm doing war college. So, and then for you all, you all don't have an advanced operations course per se, but you all have to have air war college before you make 06. We have to have advanced operations course before we make 06. In order for us to make general officer, we have to have our senior service college, which is war college, those type of things. But anyways, that's all this is. It's a way, right? It's a way to do it. You know, and what you do is you fill this out with what you're looking at doing. These are my long-term goals, right? Usually I talk to people about lieutenant colonel, you know, 20-year retirement, those type of things. But that's up for a command discussion. You know, you just got to be brutally honest with officers. You got to say, hmm. Yeah, I don't see 06 in your future because you're not doing X, Y, and Z, all right? Or if you want to make 06, these are the things you need to be thinking about and these are the things you need to be doing. And it's not based on what, I, what Rob thinks. It's based on what your OERs, your performance evaluations, what key positions have you had. That's what it's based on because there's an art and science to promoting and placing. So... Anyway, so you fill this out, you put all that in there, and again, you can put your future positions. And this way, when you go into set with your senior rater, you're opening their eyes to more than just what's in that career field, right? You can start talking about that to broaden. And if, and if you've done that, then when you become a squadron commander, group commander, wing commander, then guess what you're doing when you're talking to the folks two levels down from you? You're talking about this because you did it. And then you're building those relationships, which is really key. And, and they have this on PowerPoint. You're more than welcome to, there's, again, there's no plagiarism in the military unless you're in PME, right? So you can use any of this and all of this that you want. So I, I, I was going to try to get into your all's broadening assignments, but I didn't want to look elementary, so I wasn't going to do that. That's it, that's all I got. I really appreciate your all's time that you allowed me to do this. I think it's important the more times we get to stand in front of each other from a service component wise, we, we make each other better because um, there's a greater understanding across the aisle of what's going on, so. All right, well hey, thank you. Thank Sounds you. good. Thank you. Yep. Thank you, Colonel Kincaid. You're very welcome. This is Mastering Emotional Intelligence. I am Senior Master Sergeant Moore. I am the Wing's Human Resource Advisor who is getting ready to retire. I will be replaced by Master Sergeant Karen Cummings. And I am also here today with our DPH, Melinda Hempstead, and we will be facilitating 
mastering emotional intelligence. Did everyone get a handout? Uh, it's going to help you take notes and kind of facilitate the process along today. And we are going to start today with an activity. So turn to the second page in that handout. And I would like for you to think of two people. The first being someone that you've worked with who has brought out the best in you. And I'd, write, I'd like for you to write five words to describe that person. Five adjectives, five words. Someone who brought out the best. And then think of the opposite. Someone you've worked with who's brought out the worst in you. And write five words to describe that person. Okay, it looks like we're fairly, fairly done. Was one of the two lists easier to come up with? See head shaking, so. Head shaking? Looking at the list, the adjectives that you, that you listed are probably related to feelings, to emotions, not to tangible uh, descriptions. Obviously, today, we are going to be doing a lot of activities. We're going to be asking for you to look inside yourself and share experiences. Obviously, we are being recorded, so no names. Um, and lean into that discomfort. Sometimes you learn a lot when you do that. And be open and candid. So what is emotional intelligence? Who here has had a has a good impression, a favorite positive impression of emotional intelligence. Does anyone have a negative impression? Yeah. Before we actually define, define emotional intelligence, we're going to talk about emotions. Who thinks emotions are good? Hmm? Who thinks emotions are bad? Hmm? Yeah? You know, emotions are neither. They are merely data. They just are. And emotions manifest in our bodies physically. And when I say that they manifest physically, who could give me an example of an emotion manifesting physically in your body? Nonverbal can react to your environment, things like that, whether you're mad, sad, slumped shoulders, head down, you know, things like that, like all your nonverbal cues. Uh huh. My ears get hot. Your ears get hot? Heart beats faster, yes. Your eyes well up? Yes, yes. Yes. Hand sweat? Yes. Exactly. The actual definition, it's your ability to recognize and understand emotions and your skills at using this awareness to manage yourself and your relationships with others. 
according to Emotional Intelligence 2.0, there are four core skills involved in emotional intelligence within two competencies. And the first two skills within the personal competency, what I see, that is your self-awareness. And then what I do with that information will be your self-management. In the social competency, social awareness, how aware am I of other people's feelings and emotions? And then relationship management, what do I do with that information? And today we are going to go through all of these skills. But before we start that, we are going to talk about the person. You know, we have three pieces to our puzzle. We have an IQ, EQ, and personality. Your IQ, your intellectual quotient. This is your innate ability to learn. And if you take an IQ test at the age of seven, your score changes nominally all the way till you're 67 because it's your innate ability. IQ factors into 10 to 25% of job performance across most industries. Now your personality. Personality is fairly stable in your early 20s. And it factors into four to 9% of job performance across some industries. I would think sales and customer relation type industries. But EQ, and you're saying EQ, I'm in an emotional intelligence class. You will hear EQ is, well, emotional intelligence is referred to as EQ, emotional quotient. So when you hear us say EQ, emotional intelligence. Your EQ is, it uh, predicts 60% of job performance across all jobs, all industries. And the good thing about emotional intelligence is it is a skill. It is something that with practice and work can increase your entire life. Another way to look at emotional intelligence is how it affects other parts of our lives. You know, the emotional intelligence skills are skills that are uh, desired by many organizations, many industries, within your, within your uh, family life. You know, communication, decision making, customer service, anger management, trust. We are going to watch a video and we're going to watch emotional intelligence in action. And as you watch this video, there are a few questions in the handout that we will be talking about. So kind of keep these questions in mind when you're watching the video. 
and to set the stage as to where we are in this clip. This clip is from a league of their own. And Jimmy Dugan, played by Tom Hanks, is the manager uh, of the Rockford Peaches, which is a team of an all-American girls baseball league that was founded in the 40s. And you might say his skills aren't all they probably should be. Is Jimmy emotionally intelligent? No. no, no. So, what did you observe or hear? Yes? Yes? What was the end result of his actions? She was motivated not to cry. She shut down. Was she motivated not to cry? Uh, yeah, she cried. <laughs> She shut down. She shut down. Yes, yes. Well, the entire team was also shut down as well. Yeah. yeah. They joined in right with her. Mm-hmm. What could he have done different? Recognize his audience. In the sense, like, things that may have motivated him when he was playing or going through his, as he related back to a personal experience he had, mm -hmm. it's not the same that's going to work for this team. Right. Maybe take her aside, say we can work on it. Yeah, might have been better motivation as opposed to yelling in front of her, I mean in front of everyone. You know, when our emotions get the best of us, it can cause negative results not only for ourselves, but for those around us. The primary reason people leave their jobs. This is a retention question. An answer? Does anyone have an, an idea? hostile workplace? I have the answer based upon a Gallup survey. Someone else? Because they have a poor relationship with their boss. Some of you got a link to do an assessment prior to this course. Not all of you because I'm looking around the room and I saw where it was sent. 
At the end of the course, I'll get your email addresses and we'll make sure everyone has the opportunity to take an assessment. When, had, did anyone in here take the assessment prior to the course? Okay, well good, because we'll be tagging you a little bit along. As I said, we will be doing, I think I skipped something. No. Okay. We, we will be looking individually at the four skills that are referenced in your assessment. And when you get your assessment, many times people go, oh, but what is normal? I want to know if I'm normal. Most people, and this is a bell curve based upon those who have taken the assessment, but most, most scores cluster right around 75. And 68% of all scores lie within that 65 to 85 range. There is quite a number above and quite a number below, but this is just to give you an idea once you actually receive these as this assessment from us. And this morning we're going to start with personal competency. And we will be looking first at the self-awareness skill. And I'm going to turn it over to Melinda, RDPH. Hello. So we're going to talk about the foundation skill of EQ, which is your self-awareness. Um, being aware of your emotions basically is the first step to being able to manage your emotions, okay? So think of it this way. You're not aware. Your emotions, as they happen, you won't be able to control them in situations, okay? So we're going to actually do another activity. So on that handout sheet, there's some second questions, and we're going to be watching a clip here from Julia. I'm going to mess this up. Julie and Julia. It's the movie about wanting to write a cookbook and the character that followed all the recipes. Okay. So as we watch this, I want to set the stage for you, and we're going to see how... The best way I can say it, there's two partners. There is Julia, Meryl Streep's character, is talking to Simone, which is one of the three partners, that they're going to talk about this cookbook. Well, they're, set, they're walking along the river. They're going to discuss how... They're going to um, approach the third partner who is not doing their equal part and how they want to cut down and cut her royalties. We're also going to, in this, you're going to see how low awareness can actually get in your way if you're not, if you're not aware of the situation. It's very simple. We're just going to tell her she should have a smaller share of the royalties because it is clear she can't put in the 40 hours a week you and I are spending. 60 is my liking. 18. You and I are vache en vache. That's exactly what we are. Mad cows. Mm. But I can't bring myself to say this to you, is it? You're going to have to do it. I will do it. We must be cold-blooded. I shall love her much more when this is settled. No, <laughs> it isn't that you're... Not helping to some extent. But I am helping. It was my idea to have pieces of the Cocover recipe. We know, and that was a wonderful idea. But the book has become a magnum 
Okay, so after this clip, look at those questions. How did the character's low self-awareness make it difficult or easy in this situation? Well, they were more productive when they got to the point. You know, albeit the new information was added due to the divorce, as it played out, it seemed more like it was a charade than it was an actual emotion that she was going through. It was just more of a distraction to keep them off topic, whereas when she got straight to the point, they actually okay. got the business of what they were there to do done. So do you think that Julie Child's character was self-aware of how she was going to react to a situation in there? So she kind of shut the conversation down, right? Okay. So what about Simone? Even though she lacked low self-awareness there about how about the situation, she could care less, what's going on. What did she do, though? She had good self-management skills. She was still able to stay on task and negotiate it. Because that was the whole goal. Because if you remember, they were walking by the, the river. Simone was the one that said, I can't do this. I just can't do this. And then um, Julia's character was like, I'll have to be the cold-blooded. She was actually... The opposite, right? So sometimes you have to know what your skills and strengths are, what you can and can't handle. So think about it this way. Um, have you ever been on a team and a team player wasn't pulling their weight? What was your self-awareness there? Did you use, so think about this, this handout, the 66 strategies, did you use any of those? Because this is where, so I think I saw a couple people or heard somebody did the, um, ask the experts where they've done the assessment already. I'm going to ask you, and I hope that you would please share some ways that you might handle the situation. What was your self-awareness skills in this? If, or who scored high in that? Anybody? I didn't know whoever took it in there. Okay. So if you had a higher self-awareness score... What would, under the self-awareness strategies, what might we do differently? And, and using that clip. 
I can't read real well without my glasses, so hang on a second. It's going to be on the back the top front page if you're looking for it. Um, so, how many of them let the fillings get in the way of the task at hand? Somebody was rude and blurted out something. Maybe could have been a little bit more tactful about still being able to get to the point, right? So it's important that as you are in that leadership role is to think about how you're going to communicate this information. Maybe recognize your weakness. Yep, your weakness might be, hey, I can't, I can't do that, but we still have to, let me pull somebody in and help us. So the whole purpose of this is just to re recap for you is that you need to understand your reactions. Um, when you develop, you have to pull the experts. If you're not good in that skill, you need to reach out to somebody that you've witnessed, maybe a peer has used positive self-awareness. Maybe you can pull some information from them and what works for them, and then you can adapt it to your personality style to be able to help situations. Keep in mind, like, um, cheap, mm, sorry, more, Laura said, I'm going to call you Laura today. Laura basically said you have to know your skills and if this is something that you can learn if it's a weakness. Okay? It's a teachable thing. You just got to practice it. The other thing too is hopefully you can make better choices when you're approaching situations. So if you peer, pull off the peers before you ever get in the situation, you'll have plan A, plan B, plan C, but you can keep your emotions in control. Okay, so now think back to that first exercise where you watch a Demi Dugan. What's the, what's the best list? How is self-awareness manifest in the behaviors? Okay, ma'am, do you have a suggestion that they can? Self-awareness would be maybe checking his feelings or something. Mm -hmm. mm. My favorite phrase is, bite your tongue. Bite your tongue. That's my secret self-talk. Bite your tongue. Bite your tongue. And that's counting as a self-awareness before I say something that could be wrong and cause the situation to be worse. Okay? So what I'm going to do now is hand this off to our... Master Sergeant coming, your new HRA. All right. Good morning, guys. Okay, so um, we're going to talk about the other part of our personal competence, and that is self-management. Oops, went the wrong way. Okay. All right, so self-management. Can I manage my emotions and behavior to result in a positive outcome? Can I use my emotions um, to work for me instead of get against me? And some people may think that we are pre-wired to have emotional responses um, and that there's really nothing we can do about the way we, re we uh, react and respond to our emotions. Um, but that, that's not the case. Um, though we are wired with emotions, you know, we all have emotions, how we respond to that is something that we can develop and that we can change. And we can work on um, making connections in our brain that'll help us respond in better ways. 
All right, so we're gonna talk about the brain for a little bit um, because to understand self-management, it helps us to understand how the brain works and how our emotions interact with our thoughts. Okay, so the first thing um, that happens is we receive in information through um, you know, our five senses. And then once our body receives in information, um, it goes through our central nervous system, so our spinal cord. Our spinal cord acts as the uh, relay system between our brain and the rest of parts of our body. So we receive the information, goes through the spinal cord, and enters um, our brain through the brain stem. And then the first spot that it hits once it enters the brain is our limbic system. Okay, the limbic system is the emotional processing center of the brain, all right? It is where we have our initial emotional responses happen. It's the first time we've actually um, felt, felt something at, to this point as far as when you received information. And the really important thing about this is we feel first because this is kind of the first stop along the path, all right? Um, so if you think about, if you think back to Jimmy, um, in a league of their own, he saw his player make a mistake and he probably instantly felt anger, right? So emotions first before he thought about it. Um, and then after it goes through the limbic system, it moves um, forward to the outer frontal part of the brain called the cortex. And this is where the rational, our rational brain is. It's the first time we actually thought about that um, information that entered our, our body. So um, it's, it's, there's a long way it has to travel, right? It comes through our, through our central nervous system up into the brain. We hit emotions first and then the rational brain. So the, the, the thing that we have to be really careful about is it's really, really easy um, to find ourselves acting based on our feelings um, without thinking because it hits that emotional brain before we get to the rational brain. <clears throat> but the good news is we do have a way to kind of um, bridge the gap between those two areas of our brain. And that's what we've been talking about all morning, EQ, our emotional intelligence. Um, we, uh, the EQ b can build um, new pathways, new neural pathways within our brain that bridges that gap um, between those two. Um, areas so that then we can do a better job of responding when things make us angry, sad, frustrated, happy, even happy, okay? So we're gonna take a look here at a model on how this, how, how this works um, when we do things without thinking and then also when we take a minute to try to do things when we, when we allow to um, think. So the first thing that happens, um, if, if we have something that causes us to react really, really strongly, it's called a trigger event. Um, and then it triggers an emotional reaction in us, right? Because it hits, the, hits that emotional limbic system first. So if we allow that limbic system to completely take control, what happens? Boom, we act without thinking and Usually, most of the time, probably almost every time, there's a negative result. Think back to Jimmy. He saw his player make a terrible, terrible throw, and then he kind of lost his mind, right? I don't think he thought through anything that he was really saying. Um, but 
luckily, um, you know, after we have that initial emotional response, um, there are thoughts that kind of occur in our brain. Um, and those thoughts that we start to have right after, right after that emotional response are called self-talk. And our self-talk can do kind of one, of one of two things. They can either help the situation and make it better, or we can continue down that negative line um, as well. So Jimmy probably continued down that negative line when he started having those thoughts. He, that anger overtook him and he just kind of perpetuated negative thoughts about, oh, I can't believe she did that. Oh, now look what's happened. Oh, you know, all those things you would think um, about that. So we're going to check in on Jimmy here in just a second. Um, but you do have some questions that are, that are in your, um, your hand out there. So I want you to think about those questions as we're watching this portion of the video um, because we're going to talk about the questions afterwards. So what was the, um, think about the trigger event in this, this clip. What was the trigger event? She missed the cutoff again, right? Yep. Uh, what was Jimmy's emotional reaction? He's angry. That's right. What was going on physically with him? <laughs> yeah, he's shaking. 
Gritting those teeth. Oh, goodness. But he stopped. He didn't say anything. But he stopped. He didn't say anything. Yep. What do you think maybe his self-talk was that was going on while he was shaking and gritting his teeth? Keep the team together. Keep it together. Keep it together. Don't yell. Be kind. You know, I don't know. I'm saying a lot of things here. Okay. Um, so what was the outcome this time of the situation? He's a message better and was able to realize that he's working on himself, so I need to work on myself. Absolutely. You know, he got better, so I need to be better. Yeah, absolutely. And they were able to move on, and he moved on and said, all right, let's go and keep going, right? Instead of last time when we saw the video, he kind of shut the whole team down. This time, he moved right on. Did Jimmy's anger matter to the player, do you think? Different. I think they helped her realize his control in the situation. Yes. Like she was really able to pay attention to her past experience to realize how frustrated it makes him. They saw his growth in that shaking moment of like, okay, he's actually trying to not he's derail trying. the whole thing right now. Absolutely. Yeah. She, I, she's saying, okay, he's trying. And she appreciated that. And you saw that smile come on her face. Right. Good, good, good. All right, so um, some strategies that you can use to self-manage. Um, one is don't ignore it, right? Ignoring things does not help. Um, you might be able to get away with it once, maybe even twice with ignoring something, but then what happens? It kind of builds up, right? And then pff, probably gonna explode. So don't ignore the, don't ignore the problem. Um, second is admit what, what's happening. You know, that's trying to say, oh, this is not what's happening, I can't believe this is happening, all, all those type of things that we might think um, really results in ignoring it, which continues to build up frustration, anger, what it, whatever your emotional feeling is. Slow down, breathe. Um, we just, when we get, when our emotions get the best of us, we really kind of want to move quickly, but if you can just take a minute to just pause, slow down, breathe, um, it, it helps you be able to think more clearly, and it helps those that information cross over from that emotional side of your brain over into the rational side of the brain, so then we can start thinking about, okay, what is the best way to handle this situation? Buy some time. You know, sometimes you might just need to get away from the situation for a few minutes, a few hours, a day or so, so that way it gives you some time to kind of think about the situation and what I, what I can do about it and what ways will um, can I respond so that it'll have a positive outcome on the situation rather than a negative outcome? And then we talked about the positive self-talk, having those things um, that we can tell ourselves. All right. Um, okay, so I know some of you, again, filled out the the survey. So did any one of you guys have a high score in self-management? Or does anyone in the room think that maybe they have um, pretty good self-management skills? And I'm just kind of curious, what, what do you do to help yourself self-manage? What strategies do you use? What works for you? So the survey Okay. Okay. We'll make sure you get that. So 
So does anybody think they have pretty good self-management skills or a, a, a technique that works well for them? Stay in the moment, stay focused on the task at hand? Yeah, like, okay. uh, having a very poor outcome or a family member, you know, and that kind of thing. It was having to kind of bottle up your own emotions and stay where you are and, and recognize what what needs done, whether it's take care of their emotional needs or physical needs, you know, just, just focus on that piece of it. Right? Stay present in the moment. Yeah, I like that. Did you have something, sir? Yeah, so most people might have heard of the book Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, Stephen Covey. So he talks about the concepts in the beginning of the book about paradigms because it's the way in which we perceive the world. We don't actually necessarily live in truth. We perceive what we believe is truth at that moment. And so he tells this story in the book. And I use this and I tell this story to all my, on my civilian staff. Um, I tell this to all my staff when they come on as a new hire, um, that this is how I approach it. Um, he tells the story of a man that's on a subway and he's got his kids, and I'm gonna paraphrase it, but he's got his kids with him. It's busy, busy subway time or whatever. And his kids are wreaking havoc and he's not paying any attention. Everyone on the subway car would get really frustrated with him because they're like, well, aren't you being a parent? Get your kids under control. Until somebody finally says something to him and he responds, also, I'm so sorry, and he gets his kids under control, but then he replies, we just left the hospital where their mother passed away and I don't think they know how to handle it. I know I don't. But what it shows is one fact, one verifiable fact in the situation changed and instantly, everyone's paradigm of frustration toward the man would shift to complete sympathy, empathy, wanting to help him. And so I always try to use that to regulate response from the quick spot, or like initially, because you usually don't have all the information when you first yeah. react. So that's just something that I use. Yeah, thank you for sharing. Appreciate that. Oh, I know I try to um, explain why I made decisions um, to people because that seems to help them understand. Maybe they didn't agree with the decision, but once they hear the reasons behind, sometimes it calms the situation down. Um, and I like this one that's on here. It says, only get mad on purpose. Um, oops, sorry, I've got the wrong, sorry, that's for the next one. But um, we'll talk, we're gonna talk about only getting mad on purpose and you're gonna see a good example of that as we move forward. Um, but been, been able to, reg, to, to think about our self-management skills so that we can do things when, they're, when it's the right time, all right? So it's, sometimes we do get upset, sometimes we do get frustrated, but sometimes it's okay to do that. It's just um, depends on the right timing of that. All right. All right, so self-management, just to kind of recap, um, it allows us to adapt to and handle change. Um, so it allows us to take responsibility for our own part. So anytime we're in a situation with others, there's always two parts to the situation. And being able to say, okay, this is my part of this situation, this is how I can either make it better or make it worse is really important. Um, and then prevent making a bad situation worse. Um, which you saw with Jimmy first time he made a bad situation worse because of his reaction. But then he kind of learned um, through his mistakes that he made 
Um, and the second time, he made the situation better. She had a smile on her face. She said, okay, she's probably gonna work on that, you know, throwing the ball to the cutoff or to the right person um, so that she can do that better. And the team moved on as well and said, okay, all right, you know what? It's okay, we're gonna move forward with that. Um, and it's one, one thing that's really important about self-management is having a plan beforehand, right? So we've talked about making those connections between our emotional brain and our rational brain. And the best way to do that is to make sure that we're practicing those skills and that we think about situations ahead of time and what we can do. So that way we're making those connections so that when we get in the moment, in the heat of the moment, when our emotions want to take over, we've had some practice with that and we're more likely to get that emotion or the get the rational brain working so that we can respond better. Kind of like the plan A, plan B, plan C and adapt to D unique. Yep. Absolutely. All right. So we're gonna move on to the next go here, social competence, and I think Sergeant Moore is gonna handle that. Yeah, the next one is social competence. And when we think of social competence in the workplace. Most of what we learn from others is what we see and what we hear. That is the dominant sense that we have. And when we look at the social awareness skill itself, you know, it is, can I accurate, accurately identify your emotions or the group's emotions? Am, am I able to recognize the obvious or the not so obvious? You know, what is above the surface is that obvious. That is the what you've seen and what you've heard. But that 90%-ish that is below the surface is the not so obvious. So it is building those skills to, to recognize the not so obvious feelings and emotions. You know, that is the key to social awareness. You know, during an interaction with another person, there's a lot going on. We're listening to them, we're, we're uh, listening to their tone, we're listening to the message they're saying, we're watching their body language, we're in our minds preparing to respond to what they're saying. A lot going on. There was a UCLA study that studied the weight of a message received by the individual. And in this study, it determined that the word spoken weighted 7% of a message received. The tone weighted at 38% of that message. But body language and nonverbals weighted at 55% of that message. So how aware are we when we are actually in a group or interacting with other people. We are going to try an activity. We're going to watch another video. 
and I'm going to divide the room. This, I'm going to divide the room, and we'll say right here. This side of the room, I want you to observe Chris Gardner, who is played by Will Smith, being, uh, he is going to be interviewed for a, for a position. And this side of the room, I want you to observe the interviewers, the two across from Will Smith or Chris Gardner in the movie. Watch, try to watch from their perspectives. Try to pick up feelings from their perspectives and you from the perspective of Will Smith. And to set the stage of this clip, this is a clip from The Pursuit of Happiness. And at this point, Chris Gardner, Will Smith, he has landed an interview that was very, very hard to get for an internship at a brokerage. And circumstances prior to this interview make him look very ill-prepared. And um, so practice watching. And remember, and the interviewers are the vice president of HR and a senior partner. And then we are going to talk about what was said, how it was said, and body language.
demonstrate qualities that I'm sure you all admire here, like, like earnestness or diligence and team playing to something. And I couldn't think of anything. So the truth is, I was arrested for failure to pay parking tickets. Parking tickets? <laughs> and I ran all the way here from the, the full station, the station. What were you doing before you were arrested? I was uh, painting my apartment. You dry now? <laughs> I hope so. Jay says you're pretty determined. Well, he's been waiting outside the front of the building with some 40-pound gizmo for over a month. He said you're smart. I like to think so. You want to learn this business? Yes, sir, I want to learn this business. You already started learning on your own? Absolutely. Jay. Yes, sir. How many times have you seen Chris? I don't know. One too many, apparently. Does he ever dress like this? No. No. Jacket and tie. First in your class? School? High school? Yes, sir. How many in the class? Uh, Twelve. It's a small town. I'll say. But I was also first in my radar class in, in the Navy, and that was a class of 20. Can I say something? Um, I'm the type of person, you ask me a question, and I don't know the answer. I'm going to tell you that I don't know. But I bet you what? I know how to find the answer, and I will find the answer. Is that fair enough? Chris, what would you say if a guy walked in for an interview without a shirt? And I hired him. What would you say? He must have had on some really nice pants. Okay, so let's start with Chris Gardner. A lot going on there. So what was said? What, how was it said? Body language. He was confident. Was he confident prior to going in? No. What did he do? Very well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. They're not verbal, yeah. Mm -hmm. I also picked up on the office cues, I think, walking in. Do you think he picked up on that from walking through that bull pit to the interview room? Do you think he observed what they were looking for in an employee or an intern? Did you notice how he walked into the interview? 
assertive. How about before he went in and he was sitting there? Did he pause and pull himself together a little bit before he stood up? Sometimes you, you have to do that self-management piece before us. That was him pulling himself together before tackling it. How about the interviewers? I mean, their immediate reaction was borderline disgust. Of just how is, who is this guy? Why is he here? You know, let's get this done as quick as possible. But you could see him as they heard what Will Smith was saying or Chris Gardner. They definitely, their attitude changed. They were more receptive to him. He won them over. Yes. Yes. Now, when they realized he came from a very, very small school, what happened at that point? It was like a seesaw credibility because you immediately saw the reaction to the interview board, and this guy's taking his neck out, and like, I've just lost all my credibility in this company. Then he started talking, credibility started increasing to the point like the, the vice president started asking questions, is this his history? Is this stuff that you know, you've seen him do before? Credibility started building. Then the school question came up. Credibility went down. Like, oh, great. You know? yeah, so it's like a roller coaster of trying to establish credibility and, and trust between the, the current employee and the interviewee of, like, why do you bring this guy in? Yeah. Why are you wasting our time? And then it slowly started building up from there. And do you think that did, did you all pick up on the, the senior partner was about to discard him? You know, just, yeah, yes. And what did Chris do at that point? He pulled it back. Let me tell you. Because, well, why do you think Chris ended up getting the job? Owned the situation. Yeah. He, he owned his situation and knew what they were expecting out of him. And he had good social awareness skills. Yes. I mean, social awareness skills allows us to see beyond just what we see in here. It allows us to pick up on these non-obvious things around us and to seize opportunities, to, to um, make positive, productive decisions and, and reactions in situations. This is usually where we ask the experts, but since the scores did not flow, does anyone in here think that they have good social awareness skills? When I looked at the, uh, the, the 66 strategies, I personally said, I need to start greeting people by name to help build mine. I also think a good one is to catch the mood of the room. I mean, Chris did it really good. He caught the mood of the bullpit, and then he caught the mood in the interview. So he was able to, to keep what they wanted and put it into play at the situation.
Does anyone else have a strategy that they would like to share? Of the room. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It does. You know, demonstrating social awareness. You can see that whole picture. Obvious, not obvious. It allows us better understanding and influence work relationships as well. It allows us to identify problems, you know, before they really escalate because we're able to see them before they get to that point. You know, it, it allows us to make better decisions and to seize opportunities. The second part, social competency, All right. relationship management. Quickly, because I know time is, is running short here. It is. Um, so relationship management, um, I think, is the most difficult skill that we've talked about today uh, because it relies on the other three skills in order to be able to do relationship management. All right, so we're going to talk about the anatomy of relationships. Um, so in order to have an effective working relationship, uh, three, me three needs must be met, right? So my needs, meaning your own personal needs, your needs, so the other person's needs, and then what's required to manage the situation or the relationship. Um, and if any of these needs are not met, emotions start to come into play. Um, unmet needs, whether it's known or unknown, um, or even the lack of recognition that there's a need there can really breed up some emotions. And when emotions are come into play, are not successfully acknowledged or managed, um, it inevitably leads to conflict, okay? So knowing needs is critical in managing relationships. So let's think about the skills that we've discussed today, all right? So in order to meet your own needs, your own personal needs, so my needs, what two skills that we've talked about today would be part of that? Remember, we've talked about self-awareness, self-management, social awareness. I'll give you a clue. It has the word self in it. <laughs> right, so, so self-awareness and self-management are the two things that we need to think about when we're trying to manage my needs, our own needs. What about the other person's needs? What skill do we think we need to have? Social, yes, thank you. Very good. And then the last part of this is relationship management. All right, we're gonna watch one last video. And this is a clip from Apollo 13. So Tom Hanks finds himself at the helm of Apollo 13, which is an ill-fated mission um, to the moon from the 1970s. And what happened was basically this ship had a mechanical problem and they had to abort the mission. At this point in the clip, 
Um, the, the crew is faced with a life or death situation and um, they're trying to find a way to limp that ship back home. So as we go through this, I want you to think about, uh, look for the needs. Look for the needs of Tom Hanks, look for the needs of Kevin Bacon, and what's going on as far as the situation and the relationship. And we will talk about those in just a minute. More worried about this cold affecting our, our battery efficiency. You know, we put people in the say warm power, so that's not helping us. So it could cause us to have power in the It's a possibility. I've been going over the numbers again. Have they called up with a reentry plan yet? Because we're coming in too shallow. We're working on something, Chad. Just hold on. I can't uh, remember the ratio of temperature. Uh, we've got no references on board. Well, let's see if you can pull up the mill specs on it. Listen, listen, listen. They gave us too much delta B. They had us burned too long. This rate, we're going to skip right out of the atmosphere, and we're never going to get back. It's going to get you all. All right. That's because that's the only thing we got left, Jack. Now, what are you saying, Fred? Well, I think you know what I'm saying. All I did was stir those tanks. What was that gauge reading before you hit the switch? They asked me to stir the damn tanks, and I stirred the tanks! Stop kicking yourself in the ass. This is not my fault! I want to say it is. If I'm in the left-hand seat when the call comes up, I stir the tanks. Yeah, we'll tell him that. I just asked you what the gauge is reading. All right, we're not and doing you don't know! Right, look, we're not doing this, gentlemen. We are not going to do this. We're not going to go bouncing off the walls for ten minutes. Then we're just going to end up right back here with the same problems. Try to figure out how to stay alive. <laughs> All right, so Tom Hanks, what do you think his need was in this situation? What was he focused on? Getting home. The team goal of getting home. Yeah, absolutely. What about Kevin Bacon? What do we think his need was? He was working reentry math, like how they're going to get there. Yeah. Yeah. Did he get a little defensive at some point? Yeah, so I think probably he needed a little validation um, that he did the right thing when he followed the order to start the tank, right? And, and Tom Hanks did a great job of saying, hey, if I'm in the seat, I do it too. So he validated his feelings there. And then the overall goal here was to get home safe. And so that was kind of brought back. Um, Tom Hanks did a really good job of managing that situation. So just really quickly, um, think about the relationships. Um, uh, your own professional network of relationships that you have. Um, if you can apply some of these skills that you've thought today, uh, that, we've, that you've learned today. Um, so some of your relationships may be closer. So the ones that have the lines directly to you may be the closer relationship you have. And you, ha you may have some kind of on those outer areas. And just reflect and think about the things that you can do to build those relationships, um, to have more effective relationships with others, the outliers especially, um, so that you have better connections and are better able to respond to situations and really ultimately uh, results in more effectiveness of the whatever mission you're trying to accomplish. All right. Um, so does anybody have any comments um, about this? Anything that you do to manage relationships that is effective for you, that works for you? I think what I try to think about, even if like I, there's a difference of opinion 
or a different viewpoint is I recognize that everybody's life experiences are different. Everybody's neurons fire differently. Even if you look at the same end goal, like, or I could say something that would almost offend somebody else, but then somebody else would see it as like a compliment or something. Like it all, and it all depends on all those social interactions and how you say it and things like that. But I think everybody just has a different viewpoint on every situation. And so you just, I don't know, I just always try to think, well, their neurons fire differently or maybe they're having a bad day or whatever. Absolutely. I don't know, I just recognize everybody's different and I embrace everybody for who they are and their life experiences. Excellent. Yes, thank you. Thank you for sharing that. Tom Hanks, I kind of alluded to this earlier when I was talking about self-management, but Tom Hanks in this um, scenario, he, he showed his, his anger with the situation, but then he brought it back down, right? So we've talked kind of a lot about making sure that we control our emotions. Sometimes it's okay to get angry because if he, I don't, he was trying to manage it without getting angry and it really wasn't working for him. So he got angry for a moment and kind of reminded them of the seriousness of the situation, but then he brought it back down. Um, so that's another skill that you can work on and develop to know when to show your emotions and when not to. All right, relationship management allows us to mobilize and inspire others. It builds trust with those that we work with and there are community around us. Um, it influences the decisions that other people make and it helps you to develop deeper connections with people so that when you're faced with stressful situations, um, you're better able to manage it. All right, Sergeant Moore is gonna wrap us up. Yes, and I'm talking about an EQ plan that most of you all have not taken the assessment. So we do have a roster, and anyone who did not take the assessment, please put your name down, give me an email address. It does not have to be a military email because I know we're not gonna be here for two months, and many of you can't access it away from here. So feel free to use a personal email address should you desire. But when you're making this plan, think of EQ skills as the four wheels on your car. If one of your tires is low, you typically put air in that one first. When you are looking at your assessment, I recommend that you do start with your low skill. Start with that skill and one strategy to build that skill at a time. But it does take a laid out strategy to build your emotional intelligence. And sometimes when we need motivation to keep this practice going, you have to kind of have a real personal check. You know, my real self and what I would like to do, my ideal self. And it is that disconnect between the two that sometimes that can be the catalyst to keep that motivation going while you practice your new skill. And we recommend that you practice it across you know, all environments. Practice it at work, practice it at home, practice it at the ball field. You know, keep this skill going. And don't add a second strategy until you have fully mastered the one. You know, Ask other people that are strong in the strategy that you're working on to help you. And as, as you work the strategy, those new 
neuropathways will actually start forming and they will be automatic. I mean, this is a skill that can continue to increase. Often we focus on our weaknesses. Focus also on your strengths. What can I build on? Don't do it alone. Ask for help. Ask for someone that's good in, in, in that skill. Practice across all settings and collect feedback. We learn a lot from others. Leave you with a very famous saying, people will forget what you said and what you did, but they never forget how they made you feel. And I, I think Colonel Chard is here to wrap us up today. Thanks, uh, Sergeant Moore. Greatly appreciate it. You can, you can take that. Thank you. Um, you know, first of all, I, it's kind of weird giving you both completely disparate topics in the same day, right? We kind of hit you with a, a left jab and then a big old right hook. Um, so I apologize for that, but uh, I do really appreciate your all's patience and attendance and participation in this. I think both topics are important, if yet completely different. But if I could just say a little bit on the emotional intelligence component, it's probably the most underappreciated and underdeveloped element of being a commander, is focusing on your own emotional intelligence, simply because I really feel the better you understand yourself, the better that you can understand and appreciate where others are coming from. It helps you with active listening. It helps you with uh, having a greater appreciation of, you know, not just the words that people are telling you, but the meaning behind it. And it makes your decision-making better. It increases your empathy in dealing with folks as they deal with stresses and struggles. Uh, can't overemphasize enough how important it is to develop yourself in the area of emotional intelligence. A lot of you, and the last thing I'll foot stomp with this was the feedback piece. A lot of you I know I've had one-on-one -on -one conversations with after I've given sessions here, or even if we've had other interactions and I'll ask, hey, what did you think? You know, how did we do? How did I do? Is there anything I can do better? Really looking for feedback in that moment just to try to see from your perspective if there is something that not just we can improve programmatically, but I can improve specifically. So that being said, I'm going to stick around here. If anyone would like to have a conversation, I'd be glad to talk to you. If you have any feedback for me, I would be glad to take it. But most importantly, please enjoy the rest of your drill and the family day that we have this afternoon and enjoy having July off so that we don't have drill in July. Hopefully you have vacation planned this summer with family and so forth. Please be safe in that endeavor and please take time off, relax and, and enjoy those moments because they're not going to last forever. All right. Thank you, everybody. You all have a good day. Thank you for joining us today. For more information about the 130th Airlift Wing, you can find us online at www.130aw.ang.af.mail. If you have questions about this program or the 130th, you can contact us by email at 130.aw.public.affairs at us.af.mail.